Hey, Corey, I've got a number for you. All right, let's have it. 400 billion. Okay, that's got to be the number of hairs my husky is leaving around the house right now in the heat of the summer. <laughs> that's pretty good. Uh, our Roomba is taking care of, of the same issue for my Lanab. But uh, no, it, it is not related to dog hairs. Looking out to 2021, the current forecast uh, from Freddie Mac Multifamily for the size of the multifamily debt market is in the range of $400 billion. Wow. I think that that might be the biggest number you've ever shared on, on our intros here. So uh, what's going on here then? Yeah, not only is it a big number, but it's, it is a big increase. But prior to the pandemic, uh, $400 billion was in the range of expectation. Uh, looking out to 2021. However, during the stress of 2020, forecasts fell 25%. And uh, that was based on the stress and uncertainty in the economy and capital markets at that time. And it was really hard to visualize a rapid recovery. But now, even after a decline in 2020, it looks as if we're quickly going back to that range, given the amount of demand in the market today. And the compelling story regarding multifamily fundamentals. Today, we'll discuss more about market conditions and what is driving this demand. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Corey Aber. And I'm Steve Guggenmoss. Today on the show, our colleague Sarah Hoffman joins us again to speak about the mid-year outlook for the multifamily market. In the rapidly changing macroeconomic and housing market environment, the outlook brings together the important indicators to get a view into current conditions in the multifamily rental market. Sarah leads the work on the outlook, so it is great to have her here to walk us through some of these insights. Thanks for joining us today, Sarah. Thanks. It's great to be back. All right. And the pressure is on, Sarah, because you are still our most popular guest. So let's see how this episode does. And to all of our listeners, make sure you share so Sarah can beat her last record. <laughs> Yeah, speaking of giant numbers, you know. All right, so let's get started and let's maybe we can start with just an overview of what you're seeing now, uh, you know, as we get into the the middle of the year and what you've seen over the the start of 2021. So I think uh, you know, when I was here last year, um it's kind of the same story but a little flipped in the sense of the data. We're just finishing up the second quarter and data is getting lagged, so we can't really see exactly, but we do have some preliminary numbers to indicate the second quarter has shown some strength and you know the start of the recovery. The first quarter, um, just kind of to kind of put the differences, the first quarter is definitely still seeing sluggish growth in the multifamily market, um, but not as severe as we saw near the end of last year. Um, so the the thought was maybe we're kind of hitting the bottom then. And the preliminary second quarter data is definitely showing that you know the bottom seems to have been hit and we're on our upward trajectory. Uh, so in general, we're kind of seeing positive momentum for the market. We can kind of talk to the positive momentum we saw in the overall economy, um, and that's helping boost the multifamily market as well. Uh, so in general, i happy to be back and telling a different story this time, um, kind of the inverse of, of last year's story a little bit. Yeah, Sarah, I know um, as we both end up looking into these things and getting questions from different stakeholders, and it's interesting this year because, as you say, it, it feels like we've kind of hit bottom and we're you know, moving up from there, a lot of people have questions about how that looks across different segments of the multifamily market. What, what are you seeing across uh, different bedroom types, uh, classes, that kind of thing? 
So yeah, the story is definitely really interesting when you kind of break it down much more on the different property types. Um, and then maybe even I'll go into like the different markets as well. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the story's kind of been there on, you know, is class A the one that we're most concerned about? And we did see that rents have declined most there over the past year, um, as well as a drop in occupancy. Uh, but that kind of stays with the story that we've kind of seen that hit bottom in the preliminary second quarter data um, and is starting to rebound. Likewise, kind of on the other end of that spectrum is the Class C property types have actually seen a relatively stable performance over the past year, uh, maybe some oscillating up and down, but not the drop that was seen in Class A, so relatively flat over the year. So what we kind of see is, uh, you know, recovery starting in the Class A and B space. Um, so we're starting to see rents increase there and occupancies head up. When you look at Class C, you might not see as strong, but that's mostly because they didn't really have that dip last year to have to recover from. Sarah, there's an aspect of that that seems perhaps a little bit counterintuitive, because when you think about the impacts of the pandemic and, and um, you know, employment, uh, you know, lost employment over, over the year, one would think that the, you know, those most affected are, are living in the uh, B and C properties, not the Class A properties, but you saw the, uh, the biggest drop in, in rents and you know, vacancy issues in Class A. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, when we kind of thought back to the prior recession, the great financial crisis, uh, you do see weakness in the Class C space as well there, but we didn't see that come to fruition this time around. And a few few reasons we can kind of give for that high level. Uh, one, the, there's been a lot more construction this time around, um, and all the new construction obviously comes in the Class A space. And so that's going to uh, increase the competition there. Uh, and so then when you see new buildings coming on during a stressed time, they offer up more concessions. So you could see a lot of people kind of jumping to concessions. Uh, so they kind of jumped, uh, you know, out of class A, uh, you know, maybe because there was a better better uh, deal with a new building coming up. Um, or at the same time, you did see, you know, people do kind of the shift down um, during weaker times. So if they're in class A, they get a hit to their income with, you know, job security, then they kind of have to go, you know, maybe they find a, a cheaper rental option. And so that kind of, you know, shifts everybody down. Um, but yeah, to that point, you know, it kind of, you know, the, the class C space, uh, you don't really see that drop because you don't really see a, a drop in occupancy there. So the occupancy stayed relatively strong in the class C space. I think also the, the there's been that competition from single family, um, that that you know, with with interest rates dropping so low and people needing space, and and that may have impacted the the class A as well, uh, which may have been um, another contributing factor for for occupancy. You think? Exactly. Yeah. So when you kind of look at Class A, B, C, then another uh, 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 splice we took to it was looking at the different bedroom types. So when you think of uh, an efficiency or a studio to a one bedroom, two bedroom, up to three bedroom, you almost see a similar pattern where studios saw a huge hit. Uh, you know, down with negative rent growth, one bedrooms, not quite as severe. And then the two and three bedrooms didn't really see a big impact. Um, and if not, maybe more more growth than they would have seen. So I think, yeah, to that point, especially if you can kind of you group in a lot of the new builds in the new high density urban areas, 
are smaller units. That's exactly kind of what people were moving away from. And then, yes, a lot of people didn't move into single family space. They needed more room to work remotely. A studio is not going to give them that. Or, you know, to be stuck in a, a small 500, 600 square foot apartment as you're living, working, um, and you're full time. That's where we kind of see the, you know, the desire for the studio smaller units uh, waned last year. And we saw that pick up in the performance. I do think one thing to note, though, on the single family side is how more expensive or how much more expensive it is getting to move into the single family side. Um, just looking at with home prices going up so much over the year and now with mortgage rates starting to make that turn up as well, the cost to move into single family side has increased in the past quarter um, about 12 percent. Um, just kind of looking at median home prices, uh, the monthly P&I is up about 12 percent over the first quarter. Wow. So what about market differences? Are, are you seeing some markets not so much issue with, with vacancy, rent rents remained uh, stable or strong? Or, or is it sort of universal across the board? And so that's another difference between this recession and last, the great financial crisis, is that only about 50% of the major metros that we track actually saw rents decline last year. So that means, you know, on the flip, 50% saw positive rent growth uh, during the pandemic last year um, on a year-over-year basis um, of 2020. So that's pretty interesting that not every metro saw fundamentals weaken. But I think to kind of put that, when you look at the overall national decline in rents of about 3% reported by Reese, that's because the reason that the the national was down 3%, but only about 50% saw declines is because the gateway metros saw such a big decline. We're talking like 12, 14, maybe even 20% in the New Yorks and the Bay areas, the most expensive metros saw the biggest declines. And that drove down the overall national rent decline. So that's interesting. And then in the markets, you know, where we saw a decline, you know, just thinking back on the the declines you mentioned and, and uh, changes in different property classes, were those declines in the gateway markets driven largely by class A or was it spread out across the classes? So that's actually interesting. And um, it's more spread out. So it doesn't quite follow the same trend. Um, but I'll just kind of give an example of New York City um, without getting into all the details of the metros. But New York City saw the biggest decline in Class B rents, actually, um, upwards of 20% in Class B, whereas Class A and C still saw declines, but actually not as severe, maybe around like 10% or maybe a little less. So it is interesting that across, you know, within the metro, you know, that dynamic of the Class A, B, and C story is a little different than across the nation. So what about looking ahead? So uh, looking through uh, the rest of this year, uh, we still see potential for weakness in some of those gateway metros. Our projections for 2021 um, actually show about 90% of metros are expected to see positive rent growth. And those that aren't are those gateway, uh, sort of New York, D.C., the San Francisco Bay Area, and even Miami, Southern Florida. Uh, Those are the ones that we do see the potential for continued negative rent growth this year. But that being said, there is more potential of positive um, or, you know, a positive story coming out of them as we start getting second quarter data in. As we know, the the second quarter starts the strength of the multifamily leasing season. Uh, And so the first quarter still showed weakness. um, And just with the data lag, that's where a lot of our numbers are based off of. 
But kind of getting this deeper dive into these second quarter preliminary numbers actually starting to show that these metros, the New York, San Francisco's, Washington, D.C.'s, have perhaps hit their trough and are starting to see upward momentum, which I think is a great story, especially kind of as we kick off the start of the the prime leasing season, that even these areas are starting to see that strength uh, return. So we're still kind of seeing, you know, possibility of negative over the year. Definitely not as drastic as we saw last year in these metros, but you know I think kind of we kind of want to put the asterisk that there could be better potential um, for maybe even some slightward upward growth by year end given the current trajectory that we've seen in the second quarter. Yeah, and I know Sarah, you know um, and follow all these drivers that are that are going to kind of impact these things, and even on top of that, kind of build it into models that will that will create forecasts here. And, and often the labor market is such an important part of that. But of course, 2020 changes everything. The, the labor market was, was fairly weak. I know that you've taken a look at, you know, how stimulus affects that, but how do things kind of shake out and like what builds up to these, these forecasts and, and how the drivers impact that? Correct. Yeah. So we look at a lot of underlying macro data um, and their relationship and how they can predict rents and vacancy rates. Um, and employment is is definitely a big factor in that. Is that's you know a, a lot of higher employment really uh, translates into higher household demand. Um, and you know, looking at Moody's forecast, I actually don't see employment fully recovering until sometime next year. Um, so I do think, you know, the, there is something to be said of, you know, a, a slower comeback on the employment front. But then some of the other factors we do take into account is inflation and higher inflation, um, you know, drives up prices in general. So we're going to see, you know, potential of higher rents from higher inflation, but then also the income. So the personal income story, and that's been a little bit of a unique one this time because the forecasts for the personal income growth are actually relatively strong. And we can put some basis to that, to the enhanced unemployment benefits that would otherwise kind of keep those forecasts lower. But what those enhanced unemployment benefits kind of indicate that that will keep personal income growth relatively strong or healthy for this year. And that's kind of one of the things that goes into our projections for rent growth um, and is helping keep rents up. Um, You know, if personal income growth was lower and we didn't have these enhanced unemployment benefits, uh, forecasts on personal income would be much lower and we'd expect lower rent uh, appreciation this year. I think another uh, interesting factor, though, is as we talked about single family side, is we typically do see higher single family home prices mirror uh, higher rent growth. Um, You know, typically in uh, economic standards, when home prices increase, uh, you also see rent growth increase. Uh, But within last year and even the first quarter of this year, uh, those two have started to diverge a little bit. Um, Last year, we know those really high, strong home price appreciation, but rent growths were negative. And I think that's just a unique aspect that this recession had. But as we continue to see home prices continue to go up, we would expect that relationship to come back, which would also drive up rent growth. You know, that's an interesting point, Sarah, about the income growth, because obviously this has been a challenging year in 2020 and into 2021 have been so hard for so many people. Um, So it's interesting to see that the the models will recognize uh, and, and see some of that uh, uh, interpreted as as income growth. Is that something that that uh, you know one is typical and two um, like you would expect to see like um, you know going into next year or that it, it gets treated sort of the same in all markets or or there's some variability in that in those assumptions. 
there's definitely variability across different metros. And that's, uh, you know, one of the reasons it's been so hard to pinpoint real forecasts uh, because so much is changing. Um, so as the enhanced unemployment benefits, as we know, some states aren't extending them anymore. Um, so that would impact, as we say, we look at different metros, so metros within those states. And as we know, everything's changing so quickly. So that's where, you know, kind of pinpointing the exact forecast can be a little tricky just with data um, and the whole economy changing so fast. So yeah, looking towards the future, um, that is a great question because it could impact what we see next year. And if the larger personal income growth expected for this year is uh, driven by enhanced unemployment benefits, then we could expect to possibly see that fall off next year and it'd be more driven just by overall economic strength. So the typical economic strength that would bring up personal income and wages. Um, And so that is kind of a a disconnect that you could see some potential for maybe slower growth next year if we don't really see the economy pushing up wages um, for that variable. Um, But that's where, as we talk about, there's many other variables in our model that drive rent and vacancies, um, stronger employment, HPI, all of those could could take over. And we could uh, potential to see a strong enough economy next year to see robust income growth without enhanced employment benefits. Uh, That's a really great point. I just want to stick on that for one second more because what we opened with, right? Steve's uh, really big number of four hundred billion. Um, how much does does this question of of uh, how to treat uh, income growth and unemployment benefit influence that four hundred million? Uh, four hundred billion. So I can take a crack at that, and I, I'd say that uh, I think that as we um, look at all of these things, I think that we're we, we build up to that by thinking about all these drivers that lead to um, the underlying fundamental performance in the markets, right? And uh, and so to the extent that personal income holds it up one year, I think that's creating a still strong um, multifamily market, and and that is reflected in a lot of debt market activity this year. And that is, you know, then trans- uh, certainly picking up with with ourselves and and competition is is very fierce. And so I think that is uh, a view that there is demand um, in the market overall. And I think that that goes together with something that we look at, you know, whether it's pre-recession or post-recession um, always too, is is the, the match between demand and supply. And, uh, and I think that we've long talked about how tight the overall housing market is. And Sarah had mentioned how much single family prices are going up. Um, and we expect that to have a longer term impact. But uh, Sarah, what do you see in terms of multifamily supply? So, yeah, I think the multifamily supply story will be interesting this year. Um, again, to kind of backtrack to what we were talking about last year, with the onset of the pandemic, there was, um, you know, some potential for, you know, a little bit of the the silver lining that construction would slow down last year, um, just with uh, the pandemic closing down even construction sites in some states. So even when you look at last year's number, you don't see a huge dip in total new supply coming into the market. Um, it's always hard to kind of say what if, um, you know, if there wasn't the pan- pandemic, would there have been more? But I think it's a promising story that you don't see a drop in new supply from last year year, um, indicating that 
construction still turned, buildings still opened up. Um, and I think that's this, the, the positive story that it's not going to get all pushed into this year. Um, but overall, the expectations for new supply this year um, remains elevated, but the direction is actually kind of mixed between data providers. Um, we see some project that this year and even next year might be record new supply years, um, whereas others are actually starting to say like it's turning, it's starting to go down, um, you know, not drop off, but it, they're not expecting large increases and maybe even slight decreases from last year into this year and the next few years. Uh, so it's a little bit of a mixed bag right now, um, but I think the, the story remains positive that there wasn't a dip last year, so we don't expect necessarily a lot of making up this year um, and a lot of new supply throwing in. Um, now, that being said, obviously, there's difference in all the different metro levels. Um, and one of the stories back to the gateway markets was uh, the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, while it's definitely a higher cost market, um, it's kind of still below the, the Bay Area in New York and even Boston and the terms of how expensive it is. But that market was seeing a lot more new supply come in, which is help, which is causing uh, you know slowing in the multifamily fundamentals. So that kind of had a double whammy, if you will, of being a high cost market along with a bunch of new supply entering. And on that that point of supply, in the aggregate, right, new supply um, you know can be great and and is definitely needed. But in uh, what rent levels does this new supply uh, support most? Where are you seeing that concentration? If there is a concentration. So yeah, uh, new supplies mostly coming in, in in the Class A space. And so I think that's an interesting fact when you kind of talk about the construction side and new supply. You know, Class A, uh, you know, a lot of the developers talks is the cost to construct is what warrants the class, you know, having to com- to build in that Class A space. Um, but with the pandemic hitting and it impacting the Class A units the most, you see a drop in rents there um, or coupled with higher concessions having to be offered in Class A properties. Um, and then the flip side on the construction side, the cost of lumber, as we all know, skyrocketed during the pandemic. Uh, while futures in the past few weeks has come down, it's still much higher than it was pre-pandemic. Again, coupled with labor shortages, um, you know, it, it's it's a hit to the construction costs. It's you know going to be more expensive, and now you're not able to deliver at that Class A level necessarily without offering high concessions. So I think that will kind of play into future development projects um, and any prospective projects. Uh, you may, may have to go back and pencil out some of the numbers, which would impact future supply as well. So, do you see then um, sort of Class A quality being built, you know, coming on, but more affordable than than one might expect, you know, absent a pandemic, uh, because of the concessions and stuff. So, does this seem sort of like a temporary thing? Um, you know, as you know, as the years go by, you would expect to see rent growth in those properties, fewer concessions, you know, just with a stronger economy. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting kind of to think through kind of what the potential is in that space. Um, You know, everyone kind of said the overall trends uh, during the pandemic, people are going to want to leave the cities. Nobody wants to be in high density areas anymore. Uh, There's definitely there were some moves um, brought on by the pandemic. But what we kind of mostly saw was. It, it pretty much sped up trends that were already happening. Um, and I think to put it bluntly, people who want to live in the city are still going to live in the city. People who 
maybe wanted to eventually move out of the city, just sped that up. And they moved out, found their single family home or a larger unit with more outdoor space um, or potential to kind of be, be nor, uh, you know, near parks or other amenities. Um, so they, they moved, but, you know, the people who wanted to stay in the city, uh, you know, wrote it out. Um, now, maybe there is a change in the preference. Um, again, the studio types of units are getting hit the hardest. Um, so maybe, you know, now as people try to figure out what the new normal is going to be with going back to work, if they still work remotely, have the ability to to live elsewhere, but do their job that was based in a larger city. Uh, those are still, you know, kind of worked out. And I don't think anyone really knows the answers um, to, to how that's going to be. We, we've seen or heard some trends about certain industries wanting people to be back in the office, such as banking or financial Versus on the flip side, maybe some tech uh, jobs that are, are more willing to kind of go more remote full time. So that's still being played out, but it will definitely kind of have a, uh, a potential for a longer term impact. So to kind of go back to your question on the Class A space, um, I think kind of what we can expect is, yeah, it saw a pretty big dip in the recession at the start of the recession. Um, but then, you know, it's going to kind of come back, uh, you know, quickly. Um, but kind of how fast and how those differences in um, uh, in preferences, uh, I think that's where it could, could impact it. So if you have a brand new A going in, that's small studios because they're relying on people using common space or being outdoors more that might not really come to fruition. Um, and so some developers might need to kind of adjust where they're thinking um, uh, in the sense of how big units should be to accommodate for new work from home or remote work lifestyles. And I think um, yeah, the, the, we certainly were talking about um, you know, uh, longer term urbanization trends and uh, um, from pre-pandemic periods. And, and there was just a, a huge move towards the CBDs, the, the downtown areas. And, uh, and as you say, the, there, there was a point at which um, some of that changes, but then there's a point at which uh, some of those trends, just they, they probably get back to the norm a little bit uh, as, as we get through this. Um, and it's a little bit more in the rear view mirror. So um, agreed. Uh, you know, the, there's um, a, another issue that we that we don't con consider <clears throat> as a, as a major driver in terms of like overall health of the market is because hopefully they stay at low levels um, is is evictions um, and and obviously those have been at a level of zero um, during the pandemic uh, and I know that one of the questions that, that we get often is. So as the eviction moratorium ends, you know, how much of an impact will that have? And so it is something that comes up a little bit more. Um, uh, what, what do you think of that? So on the eviction side, um, there's definitely a lot of unknowns, um, but I think we've seen a lot of good government rental assistance um, that can help support that keeps kind of that that ominous wave of evictions, uh, you know, relatively muted. Uh, between the additional uh, renter support, the enhanced unemployment benefits, and the improving economy, uh, you know, we hope to think that uh, the eviction moratorium, once lifted, is not going to uh, have a great impact. Uh, but that being said, uh, you know, there are different 
types of, of buildings out there and it's going to impact them differently, the institutional players versus the smaller mom and pop types of places. Uh, you know, so I think the eviction moratorium will, won't be equally distributed across that. We could see the, the differences among the different operators. Uh, but Corey, I know actually uh, you guys and your team put out a paper recently on, on the eviction moratorium. Uh, uh, I think maybe you might have some good insight to add to this. Yeah, you know, Sarah, that, that's a good point uh, about some of that difference in, in the, the property types a bit, because one of the things that we found uh, in that research is that, um, you know, while there is a lot of money available now, um, you know, through the, the two uh, Treasury Emergency Rental Assistance Programs, um, you, know, up, you know, towards the upper end of what economists have estimated might be the need to cover back rent. Um, still awareness of the program uh, and accessibility of the programs are, are really important. And um, that awareness is not evenly distributed, right? So, um, you know, we, we found through, through looking at uh, data from uh, Avail, who we had as a guest on the, on the podcast a few months ago, um, just that, you know, among the smaller uh, owner operators, uh, there is a bit of a knowledge gap in, in, uh, you know, what funds are available, how to get them, where to go. Um, and, you know, obviously that's not going to be confined to just uh, the small operators. It, it's, uh, you know, certainly possible for, for anyone. And then there's a difference, you know, do the, uh, how much do the property owners know, the operators know, and how much do the, the renters know? Um, you know, really hopeful that, you know, there've been a lot of, uh, a lot of groups out there putting in a lot of effort to get the word out, connect people to the, uh, to the funding, uh, you know, help navigate the application process and all of that. But it's different in every state uh, a little bit. And it's, and even within states, there can be differences. Um, but, uh, you know, again, there, there seems to be a, enough, uh, enough funding out there. And, and hopefully some of the lessons that were learned throughout uh, the pandemic are, are applied here. And, and uh, we uh, across the con- country keep finding, you know, better ways to get people access to the these funds and, and help with uh, back rent and help cover rent going forward and provide some stability. And I think, uh, you know, to kind of further on that point, some of the, the work and data that we've looked at when you talk about, um, as we talked earlier about personal income growth expectations for this year, uh, you know, boosted by the enhanced unemployment benefits, uh, you know, that is kind of an aggregate. So that's like an overall uh, look at the the U.S. level. Um, obviously, different metros will have uh, different forecasts on that. But even then, you you know, that's still a broad brush and it's going to be much more down to the personal level about, you know, how the uh, enhanced unemployment benefits uh, could have benefited some. And while a broad brush, it might look like it covered a good portion of, say, a pre-pandemic income at the median level, uh, you know, that can be very different at the individual tenant level as well. But, you know, and there has just been so much attention on this uh, over the course of this year. It's so much more, uh, it seems at least, attention being paid to the needs of renters over the past year and a half. I mean, even leading into the the uh, into the pandemic. But um, one has to think that with so much attention and, and uh, focus on this, that uh, there will be, uh, you know, better and better solutions in People will be able to connect the dots and and uh, try and blunt some of the uh, the concerns about uh, an eviction wave and and uh, help people help keep people stably housed. We, yeah, we certainly hope that uh, that operationally um, um, 
these programs can work and that there's sufficient funds and that uh, households are able to um, have stability. We have to keep an eye on not only this year, but, but um, you know, trends in the past and, and where things are leading into the future. And to me, um, it does feel like uh, as some of the things in the market stabilize, we get back to the questions of affordability. And, and I think that will be probably a concern for, um, for, for many um, rental households going forward. As we continue to look at the market, do you think um, the team will continue to uh, uh, see issues with affordability um, as we look into the future? Uh, yeah, no, I think, um, you know, this, uh, you know, the pandemic maybe kind of set back rent growth a little bit. Um, but to, to Corey's point earlier about, you know, whether it's going to be short lived or a longer term trend, uh, you know, some of the areas that saw uh, drop in rents like New York City, uh, that kind of almost then starts enticing people to move back into the area. So rents down 15 percent in Manhattan, uh, then people who maybe move to Brooklyn, Queens um, or outside, you know, start seeing as that being affordable for them to, to potentially move back in. Um, now, you know, that's, uh, you know, a broad level of affordability, kind of thinking through to, um, you know, the, the shortage of affordable housing. Uh, yeah, no, this continues to, to, be, uh, to be a problem and, and definitely needs attention uh, just to make sure that, uh, you know, with the Despite rents being down some, you know, you can expect there's also a big hit to personal income for those that, you know, didn't find work or say can't kind of get back to work. Um, you know, there might be a shift that we see in the types of jobs people are going back to. And if they no longer feel safe to be, um, you know, in an industry that is, uh, you know, seeing a lot of people, um, you know, uh, in hospitality or leisure, uh, then they might want to change their direction and, you know, kind of go towards an industry where they feel a little more safe in case in case this is something that continues um, with with uh, pandemic outbreaks just understanding the fragility of their jobs um, and and uh, the potential risk they have in any economic downturn uh, and then yeah Corey, you had a great point in your eviction paper that the potential of back rent could range anywhere from about eight billion upwards towards 50 billion uh, so you know coupled that on with uh, anyone who's gotten a hit to their income um, and you're definitely going to see that there's a growing affordability problem in the market that and uh, <clears throat> that, that's certainly the case I think that those wide ranges of estimates certainly uh, um, suggests that there's a lot of uncertainty, but but it also suggests that there's uh, a lot to be watched and to and to be concerned about. And so we certainly will continue to think about that, um, both at an aggregate level, uh, at the individual household level, and then thinking about the different segments of the market, whether it's the capital I affordable or um, moving up into naturally occurring affordable. Uh, I think that there's a huge role for Freddie Mac to play. Um, as we uh, as we kind of get to the other side of, of the direct pandemic effects and, and kind of see the secondary effects or the fall-on effects in the years ahead. So uh, so lots to be looked at there in the future. Now, um, Sarah, this has been just a fantastic discussion so far and, and the amount of, of nuance uh, you all have had to consider in, in, uh, in coming up with uh, the outlook for, for this year's uh, Really, something else, and, and like a lot of things uh, this year, unprecedented. So, going going back then to the uh, the four hundred billion dollar number and, and and the market size, yeah, you know, Sarah, why don't you just pull it all together for us? How do we how do we come up with that four hundred billion 
and and look at the market at you know at at that level. So yeah, so I think um, as you started 400 billion, it, it is a large number, and you know, if, uh, you know, 2019, it wouldn't have been a surprise. Last year, definitely a surprise. Um, you know, to kind of think it, it could get that high, but I think kind of as we talked about, uh, you know, we saw the strength in the economy. Um, you know, we're expected very strong GDP numbers this year, um, and that boosts up our origination forecasts. And while we've talked about employment not fully recovering until next year, we do expect that to see uh, improvements to also boost up uh, the economy. So those two factors, um, kind of some of the macro, the general macro forecasts that we take into our expectations for volume this year. Um, but at the same time, then we look at overall interest rates and while going up are still, you know, in the broad historical sense, low um, and property price appreciation. We did not see, um, you know, a lot of distressed sales last year, uh, given the robustness of the multifamily market in the prior year. So, you know, if there were any, uh, you know, necessary sales, people kind of held on to either wait out the recession thing and be short lived or they had enough of, you know, prior few years growth uh, that it didn't require distressed sales. So I think with the overall uh, expectations of the stronger economy, stronger multifamily market, boosting up property price appreciation. I think that's where we're sitting ourselves in a very good spot to to kind of see that high number of around 400 billion for this year. That's a that's a great summary of, of all those drivers, Sarah. And I know uh, as you and I interact with others on this, we 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 then get confirmation of of things things like this by hearing about the activity um, from our from our colleagues and in production sales underwriting and just the level of activity they're seeing and and how they you know speak to competition and uh and how this year there's you know a ton of activity from um, banks from life insurance companies from from debt funds and and it truly is um for, for those folks to be transacting in this market whether it's in the sales market or the debt market which which is what we're speaking of now um there's a ton of capital flowing into multifamily right now and, and it's a belief in these stories that we're talking about in terms of what you've got in the outlook, in terms of, uh, you know, a, a market that's, that's you know, uh, gotten through the, the pandemic, you know, better than expected and uh, to this point. And um, so I think that you, you've given us a bunch of background here today. Um, the, the paper is really great. And, uh, and I think that the, the market information kind of bears it out as well. So uh, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast is produced and supported by a team of our Freddie Mac colleagues, including our production manager, Melissa Bosma, editor, Stephanie Heston, and audio producer, Dalton O'Colla. To listen to more and keep up with the latest episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And check our website, mf.freddiemac.com slash research for the full catalog of podcast episodes and original Freddie Mac research.